This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. This week, our podcast is brought to you by BHP. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the production of iron ore and copper is critical. That's why BHP has committed to solar, wind and battery agreements at mine sites across Australia. It's happening now at BHP. Visit bhp.com slash critical to find out more. Australia lost both Judith Durham and Olivia Newton-John within one week. Both giants of Australian music. Depending on your age, your taste in music, your parents or even your grandparents' taste in music, you may be more familiar with one or the other of these women. They had very different styles but both left a huge mark. In this Squish Shortcut, we explain why. Squish Shortcuts is the backstory to the big news stories. I'm Kate Watson. And I'm Claire Kimball. Let's start with talking about the times and the music scene that enabled the careers of Judith Durham and Olivia Newton-John. We're going back to a time in Australia, Claire, in the 1950s and 60s. We were just past World War II. It was a period when the great Australian dream was to own a home, a Holden, if you were doing well, the latest Victor Lawnmower and a Sunbeam Mix Master. They were simpler times, I think. The Menzies government came into power in 1949 and stayed there until 1966. Can you imagine, Claire? Yeah, I really can't. No. And whilst the political scene was reasonably stable, there was big social change happening. Uh, things like television, for example, started broadcasting in 1956 mm. and music was at the forefront of those changes. Rock and roll really entered the fray. Uh, The blues, jazz music, we're talking about the era of Elvis. And then a bit later, Claire, the Beatles, of course. We know Australia can at times lag behind the US and the UK when it comes to trends. This was no different until the Beatles toured in Australia. Yeah, that was in 1964 and it was a direct result of the Beatles and their tour of Australia that inspired some of our homegrown talent uh, to take themselves overseas to seek success in the UK and the US. It was kind of this dream of cracking the big time, wasn't it? Yeah, really was. And it was a dream shared by both the Seekers, uh, of which Judith Durham was the lead singer, and of Olivia Newton-John. And here we are. And it's a short opening segment, but we thought it was important just to set the scene, just to give you an understanding of what was going on in the lead up to the huge careers that both these women had. Let's get in now, first of all, to the life of Judith Durham. Before we get into her specifically, Claire, you can't talk about Judith Durham without talking about the Seekers. What they achieved was groundbreaking for an Aussie band. They were the first to be majorly successful in both the UK and the American markets. They were a super group and their best known configuration was the one that achieved that right at the start. Uh, And on that was Judith Durham on vocals, piano and importantly, the tambourine. Yep, the rest of the group were made up of Athel Guy. He was on the double bass and the vocals. You don't see many double basses in music anymore. Keith Potger played guitar, the banjo and vocals. And Bruce Woodley was on the guitar, the mandolin, banjo and vocals. The key thing to note here is that they were all on vocals. Yeah, and that was their style, really beautiful harmonies. Mm. Uh, And it was Judas' angelic and really pure voice uh, that was their trademark. She was just a beautiful singer. 
As a side note, when the Seekers originally formed, there wasn't, as they called them, a girl singer. The lead vocalist was a bloke named Ken Ray. He left the group to get married with his place taken by, of course, Judith Durham. And she was an established jazz singer. At the start, she only sang with the Seekers when she wasn't performing in local jazz clubs in Melbourne. Uh, But the group grew quite a following and Durham's music connections got them a local recording contract. Um, Their debut single was, if you can believe it, Waltzing Matilda. uh, (laughs) And it hit number 74 on the national charts in November 1964. Waltzing Matilda, hey? A classic, an absolute classic. During that time, they took a 12-month contract as the onboard entertainment on a cruise ship called the Fair Sky. That's what took them to the UK. And the intention was that they would return to Australia, but things started to happen for them there. The breakthrough moment was when they filled a spot at a concert headlined by the iconic singer Dusty Springfield, and there they met her brother Tom Springfield. He was a songwriter and he penned uh, I'll Never Find Another You for them and they recorded it. And by the start of 1965, they had on their hands a hit song in the UK, the US and Australia. Their success had a lot to do with their sound. They weren't too pop, they weren't too rock, they weren't too folk. That means they got a lot of airplay and their audience was a big one. They appealed to a lot of people. They really did. And the Seekers were able to capitalise on that position with a string of hits. Georgie Girl, uh, The Carnival Is Over, Mornington Ride. I really want to sing. (laughs) (laughs) Let's spare people that. Yeah, let's not do that. (laughs) And they had musical giants writing for them at the time. They were in demand. So people like Paul Simon was one. Mm. Uh, And they did a lot of the writing themselves too. I was reminiscing about Judith Durham on the ferry on the way to work the other day and I put on the song I Am Australian. Everyone listening really would know it, I think. The song We Are One But We Are Many, it's called I Am Australian. It was written by Bruce Woodley from The Seekers with Dove Newton in 1987. Yeah, and it became a song that was strongly linked to The Seekers uh, and it was in 1997 that it became better known when it was recorded by Durham. Yeah. Uh, also, Russell Hitchcock from Air Supply uh, and Yothu Yindi's Mandawu Yunapingu. Yeah, my recommendation is them performing it at the AFL Grand Final in 1994, an iconic moment. As for Durham herself, Claire, she once said that she never dreamed of being a pop star. She wanted to be singing on stage and playing piano. She never thought she'd be writing songs. But the quote goes, once things got underway, all the rest unfolded. And isn't it amazing just where life can go? Mm. Uh, And at the core was a very close relationship between the members of the Seekers. She called them her brothers. Uh, She said that she knew that she was lucky that they were with her uh, and that everything that they did together, they remained very close. Yeah, that's not to say there weren't tricky times. In 1968, she announced that she was leaving the Seekers to pursue a solo career and the group, well, it disbanded. Yeah, and probably the notable success story of that time was Keith Potka, uh, who formed the New Seekers, and they had a huge success with the song I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing in Perfect Harmony. Uh, Coca-Cola picked it up uh, to be one of the most recognisable ad campaigns of the 20th century, and any Mad Men fan would tell you that. I'm just started watching Mad Men, Claire. I'm way behind the times, just started watching it. But um, I do know what you're talking about. Things were never really the same when they brought in other female singers to replace Durham. So over the years, she sort of started to get back with the band, especially on their reunion tours. 
Yeah, she did, but she had her own personal struggles too. Uh, she lost her beloved husband, Ron Edgeworth. He died of motor neurone disease in 1994. Uh, she had her own bad car accident in 1990 and she had a brain hemorrhage then in 2013 during a Seekers tour. Uh, and she also had a lung condition since childhood. And that's what slowed her down in recent years and what claimed her life. She didn't have children. Her friends were with her when she died. They say she wasn't afraid of death, that she accepted the struggles in her life and was grateful for the big life that she lived. Yeah, and speaking of people who looked at her life, Olivia Newton-John was one of them. Uh, She actually saw the Seekers play at her school uh, in the very early days and she was really inspired about how she cracked the international market. And on that note, we'll leave Judith Durham there and talk about Olivia Newton-John. Let's get into that now. Claire, we're working with BHP again on Weekly Wrap this week because they're keen to share with Squizzers how the resources they mine are key for our economy's shift to renewable energy. Yeah, so we often hear about the push towards renewable energy, but what doesn't get as much attention is the role that mining companies are playing in making that transition possible. Take steel, for instance. It's a key material used in the construction of renewable energy infrastructure, as well as bridges and transportation, hospitals and schools, and a big part of it comes from iron ore. That iron ore mainly hails from Western Australia, and BHP says the importance of responsibly produced Western Australian iron ore is clear. Yeah, and by that, they mean reducing the greenhouse gas emissions associated with iron ore production. That's why BHP has committed to a solar and battery agreement to help power their port facilities at Port Hedland. It's happening now at BHP. And if you want to learn more, visit bhp.com forward slash critical. You'll find that link in your episode notes. Claire, to say there's been an outpouring of emotion following the news that Olivia Newton-John had died is an understatement. She was a beloved Australian. She holds a very special place in so many people's lives. Let's start at the beginning, though. She was born in the UK. What? (laughs) I know you were shocked to learn that. (laughs) Look, she was an Aussie, and let's not dilute that at all. But she was born in Cambridge. Um, Newton-John's father was an MI5 officer uh, on the Enigma project at Bletchley Park. And if that is really gobbledygook to you, uh, long story short, he was a senior spy, part of a team that broke the German codes, and that basically won World War II. It's seriously impressive. Um, Also impressive, he was said to have taken Rudolf Hess into custody. He was the deputy leader of the Nazi party. So there's your mini shortcut on Olivia Newton-John's dad. And there's more. (laughs) Let's go back another generation. Her maternal grandfather was Max Born, a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Question is, how did she end up to be in Australia? (laughs) Well, after the war, um, her father moved the family to Australia. He took up the position as a professor of German uh, and also the master of Ormond College, which is at the University of Melbourne. Uh, At that time, Olivia was just six years old. She was a keen and talented singer as a girl and a teenager always. In 1965, she won a talent contest on the television program Sing, Sing, Sing. (laughs) And the prize was a trip to the United Kingdom. Uh, She was reluctant to go. She was 18 years old and she had a boyfriend, uh, but her mother pushed her to broaden her horizons, so off she went. Um, By the way, her boyfriend at the time was Ian Turpey, uh, who was an entertainer, and he went on to host The New Price is Right, and people of a certain 
certain age will know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't really know what you're talking about. Do I need to know? We can move on. <laughs> no, just move on. Okay. <laughs> it's a small world, which was Olivia Newton-John's mum's point. She battled it out on the music scene in London and had good success there. She even represented the UK at Eurovision, competing against ABBA, who won with Waterloo. That's a whole other story. But as we've alluded to, she really wanted to crack the US market, and that happened in 1973 with the song Let Me Be There. It's a country song. Yeah, and it earned her a Grammy for Best Country Female, which wasn't bad for an Aussie based in the UK. Mm. (laughs) And she doubled down with songs like If You Love Me, Let Me Know, uh, and then I Honestly Love You became her first pop song to reach number one. And that bridging of pop and country was a big deal at the time. And when she was given the Country Music Association's Female Vocalist of the Year Award in 1974, there was quite a bit of debate. Yeah, and she beat Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton and Anne Murray to claim that award. They're big names. Uh, Long story short, it was enough to get her to leave the UK for America and she was on fire. Kate, I know you'll really like this. Uh, Olivia released the albums If You Love Me, Let Me Know and Have You Never Been Mellow within 154 days of each other. Both went to number one. Mm. She held that record until Taylor Swift came along in 2020. Uh, with the two number one albums, Folklore and Evermore. Uh, They had just 140 days between them. There you go. And the debate will rage as to who is the better artist. I'm not going to take that one on this week. (laughs) The similarities between them end there because the thing that changed Olivia's direction was in 1978, she starred in the movie Grease. Surely everyone's seen Grease. Yeah, Grace. Innocent Sandy, <laughs> who fell in love with Danny with some summer lovin'. Uh, it's a big movie. It had a huge soundtrack, though. Uh, and she said that it was nostalgia for her generation. And this is the quote. And then there's the young kids. They're rediscovering it every 10 years or so. Yeah, it's gone through generations and generations. If you haven't seen it, watch it immediately. Claire, you hate musicals. Thoughts on Grease? <laughs> yeah, can't stand it. What? It's <laughs> a classic. I love it so much. She oh, continued no. to release country music. She was very successful. In the late 70s and 80s, her pop persona was developing. Another movie came along, Xanadu. Yeah, so my favourite song of hers from all time is Magic and it comes from that movie. Uh, And in 1981, she had a huge hit with Physical. Uh, It was ranked as the biggest song of the decade. It's just a huge song. Yeah, again, resisting the urge to sing. (laughs) (laughs) After that, she became a mum. Her daughter, Chloe, came from her marriage to actor Matt Latanzi. They met on the set of Xanadu. They divorced in 1994. Her next partner is a bit of a mystery, Patrick McDermott. Yeah, he disappeared following a 2005 fishing trip off the Californian coast. He was never found, but the official investigation said that he was likely lost at sea. Uh, And then in 2010, uh, a private investigator claimed that he was alive and living in Mexico. Yeah, this was, of course, all post his relationship with Olivia Newton-John, but a mystery it remains. She did marry again, though. Yeah, she married John Easterling. He's quite a spiritual person and very heavily involved in medicinal botanicals. And that's been a big part of her life since she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1992, Claire. Yeah, she became a big advocate for medicinal cannabis. And in 2008, the Olivia Newton-John Cancer and Wellness Centre was built in Melbourne. Uh, It focuses on cancer care that's complemented by a wellness program. Um, They say it's to support patients' body, mind and spirit. 
just one of many legacies that she leaves. As we know, she died of cancer at her home in California. She was 73 years old. That's your shortcut to Judith Durham and Olivia Newton-John. On to our recommendations. Each episode of Squeeze Shortcuts, we recommend some further reading, listening or watching. As I said earlier, I've got a link to the AFL Grand Final performance in 1994 by Judith Durham. She sings I Am Australian. She sings Georgie Girl, a couple of others. It's worth a watch. I'll take on um, ONJ then. Uh, as I said, my favourite song of hers is Magic, so I've got a link to that. Get your roller skates out. <laughs> you're, so, you're so of the 80s, aren't you? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Squeeze Shortcuts. As always, if you like what we do, please leave a review on your podcasting app. We'll be back next week. Next week.